Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is June 15th, the Ides of June. That's something. Ah, oh, I need to begin today with a peace poem, a peace poet. Um, in these sad times, you know how that is, we must reach out for whatever keeps us, keeps us going, keeps us alive. I have these piles of books around my apartment. Um, they're basically in sets of three. What was it Francis Bacon once said? He said, some books are to be tasted, some swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. <laughs> Poets, I guess I leave in the chewed and digested pile. That's the uh, little heap of books over my bed. I have a collection here called Women on War, an international anthology of writings from antiquity to the present. And, of course, it's the same poem over and over and over. Uh, Euripides' Trojan women, the women... Um, who were left after the war to be divided up as spoils. I want to jump right to a poem by Denise Levertov called Making Peace, and the second half is titled What It Could Be. Denise Levertov was born in 1923, and we lost her in 1997. She was a British poet. She lived here in the U.S. after World War II, and, of course, Everyone in the literary community remembers her as a powerful uh, activist. She opposed the Vietnam War and the threat of nuclear war. Um, she does have that trick, that capacity to put the personal and the political in the same image even. Uh, she was a lyric poet. I remember her vividly. Um, she was... Um, Touched with grace, I guess that's the only thing I can say from my my few meetings with her. Um, this poem is called Making Peace. A voice from the dark called out, The poets must give us imagination of peace to oust the intense, familiar imagination of disaster. Peace not only the absence of war, but peace like a poem. It is not there ahead of itself, can't be imagined before it is made, can't be known except in the words of its making. Grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid. A feeling towards it, dimly sensing a rhythm, is all we have, until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning them as we speak. 
a line of peace might appear if we restructured the sentence, our lives are making revoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowed long pauses. A cadence of peace might balance its weight on that different fulcrum, peace a presence, an energy field more intense than war. It might pulse then stanza by stanza into the world, each of living one of its words, each word of vibration of light facets of the forming crystal is part two, what it could be. Uranium, with which we know only how to destroy, lies always under the most sacred lands, Australia, Africa, America. Wherever it's found is found an oppressed ancient people who knew long before white men found and named it that there under their feet, under rock, under mountain, deeper than deepest water springs, under the vast deserts, familiar inch by inch to their children, lay a great power. And they knew the folly of wrestling, wrestling, ravaging from the earth, that which it kept so guarded. Now, 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 at this instant, men are gouging lumps of that power, that presence. Out of the tortured planet, the ancients say, is our mother breaking the doors of her sanctum, tearing the secret out of her flesh. But left to lie, its metaphysical weight might, in a million years, have proved benign, its true force being to be a clue to righteousness, showing forth the human power not to kill, to choose not to kill, to transcend the dull force of our weight and will, that known profound presence untouched, the sign providing witness, occasion, ritual for the continuing act of non-violence, of passionate reverence, active love. That is Denise Levertov's poem, Making Peace and What It Could Be. As we all know, the... The great war, as Diane de Prima, the poet Diane de Prima says, is always the war on the imagination. Um, to try to imagine peace seems to be beyond the scope of um, most of our political leaders. Uh, yes, images, images, images. I remember the the um, the wonderful poet Eleanor Wiley. She she has a poem called "Let No Charitable Hope." Right. She wrote. Now let no charitable hope confuse my mind with images. Every time I snap on the uh, television off and on, I wonder how much confusion it causes in the mind. Uh, I was raised before we had the TV, so I think that 
you see, that I can transmute or at least uh, translate it. But I'm not so sure anymore. I think we're all soaked in these images of... Let's see. Let me finish that Eleanor Wiley poem. Yes, at the end she writes, I was being human, born alone. I am being woman, hard beset. I live by squeezing from a stone the little nourishment I get. Eleanor Wiley uh, died when she was 43, back in 1928, born 1885, 1928. A dear close friend of Edna St. Vincent Millay's, she had a lot of poems about um, about uh, war and the inevitability of violence, what we call, yes, the dance, the man dance. Who called it the man dance? Somebody did that on NPR this week. They talked about the man dance, and I thought of uh, Gertrude Stein, how she said two things are always the same, the dance and war. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mustn't mock. I have a note from a listener telling me that I mock too much, that I mocked our poor uh, ex-president. Yes, indeed. Oh, folks, we're likely to wind up, yes, if we don't change our direction, we're likely to wind up where we're headed. That's my note to myself this week, yes. If we don't change our direction, we're likely to wind up right where we're headed. <laughs> and I wonder... Where that might be. Uh, I have one other note on liberty, folks. On liberty. Uh, you remember Thomas Jefferson. He's the template for liberty, for uh, the mind. He, he said, if a nation expects to be both ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. A society that will trade a little liberty for a little order will lose both and deserve neither. And then we have John Stuart Mill, who wrote, If society lets any considerable number of its members grow up as mere children, incapable of being acted on by rational consideration of distant motives, society has itself to blame. And I wrote that um, quote down under my list of... Um, Reasons to remove the president from the White House to have a child, um, someone who is just a fantasist in the uh, presidency, seems to me uh, highly inappropriate. It was inappropriate during Reagan's reign, and it is inappropriate today. Uh, <laughs> these are the guys. Yeah, they have they have the sacred conviction. They believe in absolutes. They are not relativists. Uh, they are ready to die for. Uh, what they believe is interesting. Uh, I need to tell you, I need to give you one announcement before I forget. I'm sure to forget it. Tomorrow evening, Wednesday, I will be over at the East Bay Great Panthers. And let's see, light supper served. I wonder what that means. I hope that's not just cheese and crackers, folks. Uh, Wednesday, June 16th, 7 p.m., we probably won't get started till 7.30, but it says here 7 p.m., so I'll say 7. Berkeley Gray Panther Office, 1403 Addison Street, Berkeley 94709. That's over behind the University Avenue Andronicos. If you know where Andronicos is, University, Addison Street, 1403 Addison Street. Uh, 
I'll give you a phone number for more information. Basically, I'm going to bring my my books and try to read some things that are a little more personal. Yes, ho, ho, more wine, less truth. All this politics is crushing the spirit. Uh, the phone number for the Panthers is in the Five and Dime area code right here in town, 510. Number is 548-9696. I'm sure they're listed under Gray Panthers. Um, I won't talk all evening. I hope that I will have enough help from you guys asking pertinent, brilliant questions. 548-9696. I will bring my books and goodies and things like that. (laughs) Now, I hope that you had an opportunity to see Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, on C-SPAN this week. There was an unveiling of their portraits at the White House. <laughs> it, it was a study in surrealism. I, I, I wish I had taped it. I, I think it's for the ages. Clinton has this habit when he's perplexed or when he can't cope. He puts his hand uh, over his chin, and I, I've noticed, I, I pay attention to this because it's a habit I have when I'm afraid that I might, uh, you know, just start screaming or say something inappropriate. I'd literally hold my hand over my mouth and, uh, you know, my jaw rolls around. Anyway, uh, Clinton tried to uh, uh, look properly grateful when the portraits were unveiled. Both portraits are by Simi Knox, uh, the first African-American to... Um, be asked to paint the president. Uh, Hillary spoke about um, uh, the artist's humanity, his uh, patience with them. The fact is that uh, they are busy folks, she said, and uh, uh, he was very kind. He said on NPR the other day that he worked mostly from photos. Anyway, it made me realize that the artist is still at the service of the state, folks, uh, you know, at least in America, our hero is seldom the the cultural person, the artist, the poet, the writer. We give celebrity, well, first to um, politicians, then athletes. Athletes are very big. Uh, I guess politicians last a little longer. People still remember the uh, uh, the Abe Lincolns of this country. A few film stars make the list, and of course... Um, Today, the music pop stars are the biggies. Uh, I thought about this over and over again uh, last Thursday when Ray Charles died. The passing of a 93-year-old ex-president took up, oh gosh, uh, more than a week of mass media time, hour upon hour. Um, I'm going to write and find out. Um, I want to know exactly who paid the bill for uh, Reagan's... <laughs> That, that orgy, uh, when Reagan departed. Ray Charles, of course, was an American institution, and for half a century, he was the soundtrack for my life. Uh, my, uh, experiences were set to his music, his voice. And, of course, we still have the voice, uh, still on the CDs, but I felt his loss in this visceral, painful way, uh, Music and song are what our lives are made of, and when the singer dies, uh, the silence is, silence is profound. If you're my age, or even if you're a young person, 
I'm sure you you can remember moments um, moments of great happiness or great sorrow when Ray Charles was a presence, uh, a part of your emotional context. Um, Ray Charles is said to come up from gospel, you know, to put the sacred into the jazz, the popular music. Um, scholars wrestle with this, and uh, it's been called secular soul, yes. <laughs> secular soul music. I love it. Uh, uh. Do secular people have a soul? Ask yourself that. Whatever the words you use, you know, uh, erotic, imaginative, sensual, celestial, magical, uh, the sounds, the sounds are the sounds of angels, um, and the knowledge that love is perennial as the grass, uh, these are things that we know without the words, um, love keeps on keeping on no matter what the human race can do to try to kill it. I imagine Ray Charles in jazz heaven somewhere playing with Louis Armstrong and Mahalia Jackson and Ethel Waters and Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith and oh, so many of those saints marching, marching in my memory, reminding me that our lives are never limited just to politics or economics. Um, this material plane, <laughs> this is not all there is. Uh, during the ceremony there at the White House, that one I watched on C-SPAN, Bill Clinton spoke about these matters briefly. He said that politics is noble work. Yes, uh, noble work. And that he hopes for a return to the vigorous debates that um, we had in the past, you know, Debates over what's right or wrong, what's good for the people, you know. Um, <laughs> yes, I suppose he was trying to point out that uh, the general welfare is uh, the job description of the president. Uh, politicians are hired to serve our human needs, but it's a question of scale. Uh, George Bush declares that the government must make us good. Yes, be careful when governments decide to make you good. I don't think that the job description covers that area. Bush calls on God as his moral authority. You remember recently New Yorker profile in which he said that his earthly father was not his God. It was his father above, you know, the father who art in heaven. Uh, it never seems to have occurred to him that God may have other constituencies, um, even other priorities. This retro mindset, this absolutist psychology, has been around a long time, certainly before the Republicans claimed it. You remember the divine right of kings, that was big in Egypt once upon a time. I always think of my favorite song. I can't remember who sang it, I've got to find it again. Uh, it's that wonderful line, Bye, Pharaoh, honey. <laughs> Bye, Pharaoh, honey, but the Republican Revolution certainly put a Pharaoh back in the White House, yes, as the conservative William Buckley said on Charlie Rose this week. Uh, uh, Buckley said that Reagan actually was convinced that what was good for him was good for everyone, you know. Uh, it never seemed to occur to him to ask objectively 
what might be best for the country. You know how that goes. Uh, <laughs> it's so difficult. Uh, subjective perceptions used to be considered or thought of anyway as feminine, female, or in the realm of the poet, you know. I think it's simply a question of development. Maybe it's a question of linguistics, actually. Some minds and hearts go on expanding, enlarging, taking in more and more possibilities, seeing more and more possibilities for change. They also see more and more contradictions. Mm -hmm. Others are only comfortable sticking with certain convictions. They call them sacred convictions, yes. Uh, they hold fast to a dogma or ideology. This is their measure of man, their measure of manly strength, you know. Uh, something to do with the faith of our fathers. It's a fear of change, perhaps fear of loss, this need to hang on to one belief, one thought. The safety of tradition. Uh, you know, Dad always did it this way. But what happens then, see, when the mind closes utterly, closes down, refuses to adjust or adapt to changing circumstances, uh, I heard a talk show host recently sneer at what he called situational ethics. He thought that was bad. You mustn't have situational ethics, you know. Uh, you must have uh, a firm belief and stick to it to the death. Of course, when you do that, the result will be a war, a conflict. In the case of George W., we see the results. Uh, we see also that it was in the works for years it happened not because there was no way in the world to prevent it. It happened because they wanted it. Um, it was all part of the plan. It was the course of action that benefits economic interests. Yes, the new frontier, folks, the new world order, uh, Pax Americana, a real wild west for the new generation. Now, they're calling this federal contractors just at the moment, these cowboys. <laughs> I heard one of them interviewed recently on the radio, and he was the one who was trying to straighten out these Iraqi men. He said that the men um, were much too affectionate with one another that they held hands in the street. And he, the uh, macho American, was here to make changes, <laughs> change that. And a woman colleague suggested that he was out of his mind, perhaps, there were better things for him to do. Uh, it is so interesting. Uh, I always try to remember that uh, in in the long run, aesthetics is the mother of ethics. Uh, and the singers, the poets, the cultural leaders of the world are the ones who must guide us, uh, who must give us the images we need to create a world uh, of peace and, of course, they're overwhelmed by the warrior culture, the culture of cruelty, rather than the culture of compassion. Uh, let me read you just a few lines from Denise Levertov called Making Peace. I've been reading the uh, the works of women on war 
in a new anthology, international anthology of writings from antiquity to the present. And uh, it's obvious, of course, that it's the same song. Well, since Euripides, Trojan women, and I'm sure before that, uh, the voices of the peacemakers, both men and women, of course, always a disclaimer here, folks. Keep your systemic perspective. We know that some of the greatest uh, peacemakers have been uh, men, male men, that is to say. <laughs> the language does hang us up, doesn't it? Uh, and, of course, there's always Maggie Thatcher. Yes, I know you all called to remind me that Maggie Thatcher <laughs> was up there with Ronnie Reagan. Oh, Maggie Thatcher. Anyway, making peace and what it could be. Denise Levertov was a British poet who uh, died in 1997. She came to America and lived here after the war, and she was a major uh, uh, activist against the Vietnam War. She wrote, A voice from the dark called out, The poets must give us imagination of peace to oust the intense, familiar imagination of disaster. Peace, not only the absence of war, but peace like a poem, is not there ahead of itself. It can't be imagined before it is made, can't be known except in the words of its making, grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid, a feeling towards it. Dimly sensing a rhythm is all we have until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning them as we speak. A line of peace might appear if we restructured the sentence our lives are making, revoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowed long, long pauses, each word a vibration of light, facets of the forming crystal. And I wish I could read the rest of this poem. I'll save it for next time. I think I would like to try to begin... Uh, begin with uh, poems each time on uh, KPFA because uh, it's so important right now. Uh, once again, tomorrow evening, Wednesday evening, I will be at the East Bay Gray Panthers and uh, we will have a light supper at 7 o'clock. That's the Berkeley Gray Panthers office, 1403 Addison Street in Berkeley. It's uh, behind University Avenue's Andronico's. And, uh, yeah, the East Bay Gray Panthers uh, says, For those who like to be brought to rapt attention, I will be weaving literature myth in the chaos of our time with some unpredictable one-liners, whimsical irony, and unnerving truth. <laughs> Once again, that's 1403 Addison Street, Berkeley, 94709, behind the University Avenue Andronicos. And I did want to thank all those of you who have sent me your poems and your letters, so many things, um, actually whole books. I thank you for the copy of Phyllis Chesler's book about men, a book I've been searching for for Years. I hope to take that one um, with me. I'll bring that one with me uh, tomorrow night at the Grey Panthers, and we'll use it on the air. 
it's a profound study of fathers and sons. And if you'd like a popular version of, yes, the father-son movie of the week is called Badass. Don't miss it. It's wonderful. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. So divide up those in darkness From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys, there's your picture Drop the shadow out of sight. In memory of Palestinian artist Najil Ali, who was assassinated 17 years ago because of his cartoons, Dr. Fay Awais will give a special presentation about the cartoons of Najil Ali, focusing on Handala, the main character in Al-Ali's cartoons that served as his signature and later became a symbol of Palestinian struggle and right of return. That's on Friday, June 18th at 7.30 p.m. at the Arab Cultural and Community Center. For more information, please call 415-664-2200. That is a benefit for the Arab Cultural and Community Center.